Well, this morning, we are not going to be in any particular passage the entirety of our time. We usually preach expositorily, and I think there's an incredible benefit to that, one of which you're working through uh, every piece of the Bible, every square inch. It's all inspired by God. It's all important. Um, But today, we're going to be doing a topical study, and we will be doing a study on the topic of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving as it relates to worship. I was actually reading some articles the other day related to Thanksgiving, and I came across some troubling information. I hope this doesn't ruin your nice plans for a nice turkey dinner. One of these articles by a company, Green Matters, posted this complaint outlining many ways that Thanksgiving is really bad. They said not only this is the, what the article says. Not only is Thanksgiving offensive to indigenous peoples, but it glorifies colonialism, slavery, and even epidemics. The article states that many Americans who celebrate Thanksgiving have no idea just how cruel the holiday's origins are, while those who do may choose to either boycott the holiday or just use it as an excuse to express general gratitude, gather with family, and eat comfort foods. Now, you probably didn't know that Uh, having a nice turkey dinner was actually celebrating these uh, these atrocities, these evils, did you? Well, you probably didn't even think about the fact that your Thanksgiving dinner was a political statement, right? Well, I'm, I'm being facetious. I don't think that's the case either. While there's certainly a lot of evil going on in the world around us, I don't think anyone that you would find in America celebrating Thanksgiving is really doing so in honor of Uh, genocide and slavery and epidemics and so on. Uh, Most Christians, uh, at least if you are a genuine Christian, you would be celebrating Thanksgiving not because of the pilgrims or even what the pilgrims did, but because of God. You are thankful to the Lord, hopefully, and hopefully that's why you set aside time to be thankful. Hopefully that's who you're thankful to, is to our God. I think it's ironic, too, I will humor you here, that many in our culture just the previous month will celebrate a time called Halloween, which they say is very innocent. Of course, if you explore some of the origins of Halloween, there's some dark origins behind that. Um, and whatever you make of it, uh, people say, oh yeah, Halloween's fun, it's innocent. But then the next month, when we want to celebrate Thanksgiving, they say, oh, you're celebrating genocide, slavery, colonialism, epidemics, and so forth. I, th- I find that extremely ironic. But I think that shows you, again, where our culture is going I mean, really, it's ironic that people would sooner identify with the devil than they would with giving thanks to our Creator. How sad. The Bible said in 2 Timothy 3 that, Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. It is a mark of sinful humanity. So don't let cancel culture cancel your thanksgiving. Our God is worthy to be praised, and this time of year is a wonderful time to especially emphasize so much of what God has done for us. I hope we're thankful. And so given the holiday season, it's, I think, an appropriate time to take a detour from our studies in 1 Peter, and we're going to be doing a topical study on Thanksgiving as it relates to worship. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we just want to come before you, and we want to acknowledge that if you do not work here in our midst, if you do not work through your word, if you do not convict us of sin, then nothing is really going to happen here that is of eternal value. We need you. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to speak through your servant 
And so, Father, we just yield ourselves to you in this time. I thank you for each and every one who has given up their time and is giving their attention to your word. Father, please arrest us. Please teach us. Please change us for your glory. Make us a thankful people for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The classic Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving, captures something iconic about our expectations for the holiday season, the Thanksgiving holiday. In Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown, who often has bad luck, if you want to put it that way, uh, finds himself in another jam when his friend Peppermint Patty calls and she invites not only herself, but all her pals over for what she says is going to be a, a nice turkey dinner, but she's expecting Charlie Brown to put it on. Well, with the help of Linus, who recruits Snoopy and Woodstock, the four prepare the most unique of Thanksgiving dinners. They set up a ping pong table and chairs in the backyard, but since all Charlie knows how to make is buttered toast and cold cereal, the menu consists of two slices of buttered toast, some pretzel sticks, a handful of popcorn, and a few jelly beans. And so the guests soon arrive, and Patty sees the dinner spread. And when she does, she's expecting this awesome turkey dinner with everything, and she blows a fuse, and she just begins lashing out at Charlie. What kind of a Thanksgiving dinner is this, she says. Where's the turkey, Chuck? Don't you know anything about Thanksgiving dinners? Where's the mashed potatoes? Where's the cranberry sauce? Where's the pumpkin pie? Patty's outrage continues until, of course, she is reminded by her friend that she actually invited herself. Charlie never invited her for this Thanksgiving dinner. And the whole scene is very ironic, complaining over a Thanksgiving meal. Well, I don't know. You may or you may not have plans for this Thanksgiving holiday, but it's no secret that in America we often have high expectations for putting on a big meal, and as a pastor... I'll just say something very pastoral here. I would caution all of you, having plans to put on a big meal, not to overstress what the season's about. Christians should realize there's no need to get all worked up or stressed or upset about not having our Thanksgiving dinner go exactly as planned. You can celebrate Thanksgiving without a turkey, without a nice dinner. You can celebrate Thanksgiving without any dinner at all. You don't need a dinner for Thanksgiving, but... I want to reverse this, and I want to really think about this this morning as we go to the Word of God, that without thanksgiving, you don't have worship. You can be thankful. You could celebrate thanksgiving anywhere you are, any day of the year. You don't need a turkey dinner for that. But thanksgiving is indispensable to worship. Worship doesn't happen without thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is essential to worship. So I want to think about that because I really do believe as we study the word of God and we look at the way God designed us to be his image bearers, that there is no higher or nobler activity that the human beings can be involved in than worshiping God. That is why God created you, to bring him glory. And if you know him and you are redeemed by him and you enter into glory eternal, that is what you will be doing in one way or another throughout all of eternity is you will be worshiping God. It's important. And yet, what we are going to see in the word of God this morning is that you cannot take part in the most important activity that God created you for 
if you don't have thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is essential for worship. And so, if we don't have thanksgiving, let me tell you, everything we're doing here is pointless. We can sing, we can sound great, we can look great, we, we can feel great, but if we don't have thanksgiving, then everything here is empty. It's a hollow, vain tradition. We need thanksgiving. And so in our study today from the Word of God, it's real simple. We do only have two main points that I want to show you uh, to encourage us all to use thanksgiving in our worship. First of all, we're going to look at the obstacle to thanksgiving, and then we're going to aim to deal with the objective of thanksgiving in worship. And so first of all, we're targeting the main obstacle, and that is you cannot worship God with an unthankful heart. Are you unthankful this morning? You can't worship God with an unthankful heart. So the question is, well, how can we know if we have an unthankful heart? That's an important question. Well, there's a biblical standard. In order to discern an unthankful heart, we need some kind of a standard for thankfulness, and that's what the Bible gives us. Listen to these references from the New Testament. In Ephesians 5.20, we are commanded to always be giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. All right? Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, God commands us to give thanks in every circumstance. That's a high standard. Again, in Colossians, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You see the standard? That's a high holy standard. But the biblical standard for a thankful heart is giving thanks always in all circumstances. That's what God wants. And therefore, we can discern an unthankful heart biblically by any deviations from this standard. And I will bring out two, namely, in the first case, an unthankful heart will be manifest by a lack of thanksgiving to God. Simply lacking thankfulness. Now that seems obvious enough. You know, if you're not saying thank you to God, you probably aren't thankful, right? But when's the last time you thanked God? I mean, outside of church. Again, this can become routine. Or outside of routinely thanking Him over meals. When's the last time you set aside time and made the effort to thank God expressly for specific things in your life, maybe even things you weren't pleased about? At least when life seems to take a turn for the worst, it's not our natural tendency to say, Oh, thank you, God, for my flat tire. Oh, thank you, God, for this illness. Thank you, God, that the weather has just dropped off. We tend to not thank God for those things, but wait until we get what we feel is a blessing. But the truth is, we see in Scripture, our lack of thankfulness is the most basic evidence that we have of an unthankful heart. One stormy night on Lake Michigan, there was a steamboat that collided with another uh, boat, and the steamboat sank just a mile offshore, and out of the 393 people aboard, 279 of the passengers drowned. There was a young university student standing there on the shoreline watching this whole thing unfold, and he plunged into the lake and swam to the drowning people. And over the course of six hours, this young man pulled person, he told person after person, back to the shore. And after he pulled one in, he went out into the water again to pull another. And in all, over the course of six hours, he brought 17 people to safety. His name was Edward Spencer. 
and for the incredible strain that this young university student, uh, Spencer, endured. It had completely destroyed his nerves in his body so that he could never walk again. He was rendered an invalid. He was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. It was on his 80th birthday that someone asked this man, uh, Edward Spencer, what was the most vivid memory of that dreadful day when he was a young man? And he replied, not one of the 17 survivors, not one of those 17 people that I rescued returned to thank me. And that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Remember the story of the 10 lepers in the Bible? You can find it in Luke chapter 17. Jesus heals them all. All 10. Leprosy was a terrible disease. Jesus heals them all, but only one returns to give thanks. You know, it's interesting, if you think about it, Christian, the nine lepers who were healed that never returned to give thanks, they were infamously regarded as the ungrateful lepers. The nine ungrateful. The nine ingrates. And yet, it's not because any one of them complained. It's not because of anything they said or did. Actually, it's because of what they didn't say or do. They never took the time for thanksgiving. Likewise, if we're continually neglecting to thank God, that can only be a good indication we have an unthankful heart. In addition to this lack of thanksgiving, another deviation that indicates we have an unthankful heart would be the presence of certain sinful behaviors. The absence of thanksgiving, but also the presence of sin. And namely, I wanted to, for your consideration here, call you to think about the, the presence of certain sinful behaviors, such as discontentment. One, one dead giveaway of an unthankful heart would be the sin of discontentment. Discontentment, that is, dissatisfaction with God and His provision. Discontentment is distrust or disbelief in God. It is distrusting the sufficiency of His care and provision. And discontentment is often manifest by speech, complaining speech. Murmuring, grumbling. We know this. We've, we see this kind of thing happen all the time. I think in the Bible, probably the most popular example is the Israelites in the wilderness. And you read this saga that just continues and continues where, you know, we need some food. And then God gives them food. And we need meat. You know, we, we, we don't want this kind of food. We want the kind of food we used to have in Egypt. And they're always murmuring. The complaining speech is evidence of an unthankful heart, of discontentment. And complainers can be absolutely exhausting. Just ask Moses. And when the Bible prohibits this, prohibits complaining, such as in Philippians 2.14, it's ultimately prohibiting ingratitude. God is not prohibiting any criticism at all. Sometimes criticism can be needful and constructive. But in the Bible, there is no place for criticism that is void of genuine humility and love and concern. And if your, if your criticism lacks those qualities, that's a complaining spirit. That is evidence of an unthankful heart. So just to clarify here again, venting or expressing our feelings. Have you ever done that? Have we all do that? Venting or expressing our feelings is not necessarily wrong. Just read the Psalms. You'll see the psalmist lamenting at times, pouring out a complaint before God. And sometimes we need to do that. 
But the sinful discontentment that we're targeting this morning is always discernible in this reality. It will rob you of thankfulness. It will rob you of thanksgiving to God. That is always a dead giveaway of sinful discontentment. If you can vent to God about the world's evils while thanking Him for His sovereignty and His goodness and His care in your life, then go ahead and vent. Go ahead and pour out your complaint to God. Go ahead and supplicate and pray that the Lord would work and change the world and so forth. But if your venting is merely expressing dissatisfaction with God and with what he's doing in your life and your distrust of him and his providence, if you're, if you're simply venting to God by venting your unbelief, then that's wrong. That's sin. And this attitude and even these expressions are killing your worship. It's killing your worship. And of course, you can be discontent without even complaining, or at least without even complaining speech. You can be discontent without saying anything at all. You can soak in unthankfulness. Ever done that? Ever been there? Don't get me wrong. No one's saying that you have to enjoy migraine headaches, traffic jams, people getting on your nerves, you know, pushing your buttons. Nobody's saying that we have to favor those sort of things or prefer those sort of things to happen in our life, but if suffering in any sense, in any situation, if in suffering we succumb to believing that God no longer cares, that God's no longer in control, that God's no longer trustworthy, well, that's the sort of despondency that is proof positive, that attitude is proof positive of an unthankful heart, even if you don't utter complaining speech. All right, another dead giveaway of an unthankful heart would be any presence of covetousness or envy. These sins don't get enough attention in the church of Christ today, unfortunately. Uh, covetousness is closely related to discontentment. In fact, discontentment is the heart saying, I will not be thankful because I don't have X, Y, Z. I, I can't be thankful to God. I can't praise God right now. I can't have joy because I don't like my current set of circumstances. That's discontentment. Covetousness is similar. It's the heart saying, I will not be thankful or content because I want this or that. I demand that God gives me. I need this or that. And so it's, it's sort of a, the other side of discontentment. They're certainly related that's covetousness. Envy is also closely related, but it's slightly differently nuanced. Envy is uh, typically involving resentment. It's a resentful longing for what someone else has or their qualities. So discontentment, covetousness, envy, they all kill Thanksgiving 100% of the time. And evidence of these sins is proof positive of a heart that is not thankful to God. So we should take care for this. We should realize just how serious God considers these worship-killing sins. And just maybe to do that, let's just take a, a brief moment and consider how the Bible paints a hideous portrait of the unthankful heart. For the sake of time, we'll just look at uh, the sin of envy and covetousness here. These aren't namely the big sins that come to mind when we think of the big sins. But here's some dark characteristics of the sin of envy, also related to covetousness and discontentment. And I believe if we get hold of this, and it will help us to abhor it. It will help us to repent of an unthankful heart. First of all, envy and covetousness is idolatry. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.5, 5, 
For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. To be covetous, to be covetous, to be envious is to be an idolater. That is, you are one who worships something other than God. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You can't play down the sin, Christian. Covetousness is idolatry. Are you envious in your heart? That is proof positive of idolatry. You are worshiping something other than God. You say, what am I worshiping other than God? Whatever it is that has made you discontent with him, that is what you worship. Coordinate with envy's idolatry is its pride. Secondly, we see envy is prideful. You know Isaiah 14 is this passage that many scholars believe testifies to the fall of Satan, the fall of this angelic being, this archangel Lucifer from heaven. And we read how through pride, Satan envied God in his heart, saying, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Wow. These are surely some of the proudest words ever uttered. And they reverberate in our own hearts whenever we are envious. How's that? This is because a person who is envious is someone who feels entitled. We feel we deserve. We feel we have a right to what God has not given us. What God has withheld away from us. And if you peel away unthankfulness, you will always find entitlement. And of course, entitlement is fueled by pride. We feel we deserve this or that because of our view of ourselves. Not content with what the Lord has given us. This was how the devil tempted Eve. Rather than being thankful with all God had given her, Eve somehow felt she was entitled to more. Even to be like God himself. Envy is idolatrous, it is prideful, but envy would not be possible without deception. And every time you fall into envy, every time you are led away by covetousness, you are a deceived person. Envy is deceitful. Envy is a lie. In Genesis 3, the serpent told Eve, you will be like gods. Hey, there's the lie. And because envy is so powerful, we believe it. We believe the lie because we want so badly what it is we want. Envy and covetousness operate on a lie, namely the lie that you will finally be happy once you obtain what it is you're coveting. But it's all an empty deception. Because after you're led away by envy and covetousness, away from the light of God, away from worshiping God, you will find yourself enslaved. You will find yourself unfulfilled. And so that's the fourth characteristic. Envy is enslaving. Envy and covetousness are enslaving. Given that the eyes of a man are never satisfied, Proverbs 27.20, we should only expect that envy is enslaving. You know, we see this all over our culture today. One evidence that we're witnessing of envy's enslaving effects is where people are so discontent with the physical bodies that God has given them that they are willing to mutilate their bodies. They're willing to put themselves through a series of surgeries and to take harmful and unnatural medications in the hopes of obtaining the body they desire. And rather than saying, I'm going to fit my desires to what God has given me, they want to change their body to fit their envious desires. This isn't the answer. But because envy is so powerful, 
it will drive the envious to do just about anything. So it's no wonder. Envy brings men and women to commit the cruelest of crimes. Fifthly, envy is cruel. Envy brought Cain to murder his own brother Abel. The Gospels tell us that it was out of envy that the religious leaders, religious people, delivered up Jesus to the cross. And as long as you continue to feed those covetous, envious desires, they will bring you to cruelty. They will bring you to disregard others and what's best for them in a cruel way. You say, that sounds kind of strong. But you know what? If you investigated, say, a thousand murders around our country, you'd find... I'm sure, at least in the great majority of them, somewhere along the line, is the root of envy. Someone envy. Someone covetous. And it brought people farther than they thought they would ever go. Envious, uh, envy is a, and covetousness is a hideous sin. Envy is idolatrous, prideful, deceitful, enslaving, cruel, and sixthly, envy is deadly. It was long regarded as one of the deadly sins. It kills. It will kill your worship. But like a deadly parasite, envy will also kill its host. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy will impact your physical health. And envy will ultimately destroy the whole person. Job 5.2 says, Resentment kills a fool. Envy slays the simple. Are you listening, Christian? You say, you may not be murdering somebody or planning to do that or be plotting to commit adultery or something like that, or plotting to rob some bank, some grand scheme of that sort. But are you envious? Are you unthankful? That's killing your worship. It's killing you. Just read Numbers 21, and you'll see how much God hates the sin of envy. He hates it so much that he destroys the envious. You can't worship Christ with a heart full of envy. In fact, if you uh, put up with ingratitude, it's like it's just going to put out the fire of your worship. It's going to put out your love for God. Ingratitude extinguishes true worship. You can't worship God with an unthankful heart, and so that's why we're targeting this as we think about Thanksgiving. But the other truth here, as we consider the main objective of Thanksgiving, which is ultimately worship, is that you can only worship God with a thankful heart. You can't worship God with an unthankful heart, but you can only worship God with a thankful heart. So I want to think about that for the remainder of our time. Of course, by thankfulness, I'm talking about a genuine heartfelt thankfulness. This isn't simply saying thank you. This isn't words only. This is Psalm 111.1 kind of thankfulness. Praise the Lord, and I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Psalm 138.1. I will give you thanks with all my heart, the psalmist says to God. Psalm 103.1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's the kind of thankfulness God wants from you. Genuine, heartfelt thankfulness. And it's only by this sort of a genuine heart uh, that you can truly worship God. Because thanksgiving adds at least three essential ingredients to worship. First, please turn to Psalm 69. In fact, the next three essentials we're going to see, we're going to be in the Psalms, so you can stay there. But Psalm 69, I want you to see as a first essential to worship, a thankful heart magnifies God's preeminence. Psalm 69, 30, the psalmist says, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. 
How do you magnify the Lord? The psalmist says here, one way he's going to do that, he's going to magnify God with thanksgiving. We are called to magnify God's greatness. There's a score of passages that we could go to along these lines. And we understand this concept of magnification because everywhere we look in our society, there are people <laughs> that are magnifying certain services and products. And they magnify those services and products on television, on social media, everywhere you look, because they want you to buy them. And so a lot of times they're, they're making them greater than they are. They're, they're talking them up. Well, when we talk about magnifying God's preeminence, we're talking about, or we're not talking about making God any greater than he actually is. It's not like some commercial where we're making the product seem like it's really greater than it really is. And you'll just be happy and all your problems will go away. In the case of magnifying God, we're not making him any bigger than he is. We're simply trying to reflect accurately who he is. You see, some things appear small because they are small. Other things appear small because it is a great distance that separates us from them, like stars and things in the heavens. So some magnification makes what is small simply appear to look big. That's like when you take an insect and you put it under a microscope and wow, and you can see all the little details of that tiny thing. But there is a magnification also that magnifies not what is small, but what is actually incredibly large. It simply eliminates the distance, like a telescope to the heavens. For instance, when you look into the evening sky and you locate the constellation Orion in the night sky, you can always locate this star, Betelgeuse. I didn't name it, okay? It's a very interesting uh, name for a star. But the star is located above Orion's belt. And uh, this star has long fascinated astronomers because, you know, you just look at it, it's like tiny and twinkly and unremarkable as any other star in the sky. It's just a tiny speck of light. But when you take a telescope to the star, and the greater and greater we gaze into that star, and the more and more distance we eliminate by magnifying it, we realize that this tiny speck Betelgeuse is larger than just about anything we know in the entire universe. It is, in fact, over 700 times, astronomers estimate, greater than the size of our sun, which is so much greater than the size of the Earth. This is immense. And so when we take a telescope to the stars and magnify them, we aren't really making them bigger. We are magnifying their size, sure, but we're only magnifying their size by eliminating the distance that separates us. And the only way we can remain ignorant of their grandeur is that they're just a distant twinkle. We don't understand their full glory because of how far separated we are. And I think you know where I'm going, Christian. When it comes to God, God is greater and more glorious, far more glorious than anything he's ever created because he's the creator. But like the starry host of heaven, God's glory can be so distant from our perspective, from where we are in our life. Our sins can have separated us from him in such a way that his glory, his preeminence is but a twinkle of light. We're hardly even cognizant. We're hardly even conscious of God's glory in our life. But you see, that's where genuine worship comes in. It traverses the distance by beholding the glory of God as if through a telescope. And this is what the psalmist is after. He describes Thanksgiving in Psalm 69, 30 as an instrument of worship which magnifies our vision of God. He says, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving is essential to worship because it magnifies the glory of God. It eliminates the distance, as it were, as you begin to marvel upon how incredible God is. And of course, as we consider and we use the Thanksgiving as an instrument of worship, thanking God, seeing and allowing the Holy Spirit to expand our vision of God's preeminence, you know what happens correspondingly, inevitably, is we see our weakness. We see our humility. We abhor ourselves. We realize how tiny we are. You get a hold of the immensity of the stars and you're going to feel real small. But if you get a hold of the immensity of God, you're going to abhor yourself. You're going to be a humble worshiper. And I'll just say, before we move on, you ever notice how proud people have a hard time saying thank you? You ever notice that? Proud people have a hard time saying thank you. You know why that is? Because thankfulness... Thanksgiving is magnifying the one we are thanking above ourselves in a real sense. And that's why we don't thank God. We are proud creatures. But we need to get a hold of God's glory. We need to, like the psalmist says, praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving so that we come to a place to realize God's incredible preeminence. Verse 31 goes on to explain in the psalm, this is the kind of worship God desires. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. This is what God wants from you. A thankful heart magnifies God's preeminence. But a second essential that thanksgiving brings to our worship is a thankful heart remembers God's providence. Please turn over to Psalm 107. The word providence is a beautiful word. Roger Williams the founder of Rhode Island named the state's capital Providence after the merciful providence of God. And because he did that because providence is God's protective care. Someone has said uh, providence has been defined as the continuing and often unseen activity of God in sustaining his universe, providing the needs of every creature and preparing for the completion of his eternal purposes. There's a beautiful definition of what providence is. And there's a pattern to those who recognize God's providence. The more in the Bible or in history, the more we see people remembering the providence of God, being mindful of the providence of God, we see those people worshiping God more. But the less people are aware and remembering the providence of God, they're less worshipful. Psalm 107, look at that. The psalmist begins here, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And we don't have time to look at all this, but if you notice how the psalmist perceives how God has providentially cared for his people, just look at verse 4. He says, They, he's talking about God's people, wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He also led them by a straight way to go into an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. I'll have to stop there. But here we see a, a thankful heart is recalling God's providence. How God is so faithful to lead his people, to sustain his people. And it was this very sort of remembrance that made Thanksgiving a national holiday in our nation in the first place. President Lincoln once addressed our nation by saying this. This was October 3rd of 1863. He said, The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with blessings. 
the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies to these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come others that is other bounties have been added bounties which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of almighty god Lincoln went on to describe how that despite the civil war that was ravaging the nation, everywhere the eye looked, they could still see the goodness of the Lord. They could still see the blessings of God. And so he invited the whole American people to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And with these words, thanksgiving became a national holiday. And I would wager it is one, it is one holiday on your calendar of, of all your your holidays on your calendar, that's actually worth observing because it is worth taking time, setting aside time, and thanking God for what he's done in the lives of his people. Thanksgiving is an offering we owe to God for all his blessings. And if you read all of Psalm 107, and there's certainly many Thanksgiving psalms in the Bible, you'll see that it's, it's plain here and throughout the Bible that God's providence involves every detail. It's not just the good things or the things we regard as good. It's not just that God fills us with goodness or God calms the storm. It's every detail of our lives. God is providential and he is faithful in. In fact, if you just look at verse 25 in Psalm 107, you see the psalmist describes that God speaks and raises up a stormy wind. God is the God who brings sovereignly, providentially storms into your life. And then down in verse 29, he says he causes the storms to be still. You know, God's the one who brings the things into your life you don't like. Yeah. Even things other people mean for evil, but God means it for good. And so the psalmist can be in wonder and have thanksgiving to the Lord, and he's overwhelmed with thankfulness to the Lord because he realizes God's care, not only in the times that we deem good, but in all times. That God is always working things together for the good of his people. That's his providence. And so it really is a wonderful life. For God's people. It was by providence that God allowed the people in your life that came in your life. It was by his providence that you came to the circumstances you were in. That at the time in your life, you came into contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was by his providence that ultimately he led you to believe the gospel. He's a wonderful God. He's looking out for his people from beginning to end. And recalling God's faithful providence in your life, you will become a faithful worshiper. But we often forget, don't we? A thankful heart magnifies God's preeminence and a thankful heart remembers God's providence. But a third essential Thanksgiving brings to worship is that a thankful heart brings us into God's presence. Of course, Jesus' atonement for sin, Jesus' atonement for our sin is the only thing that could give sinners like us access into the presence of God eternally. We understand that. So in what sense does the Bible teach us that a thankful heart can bring us into God's presence? Well, look over at Psalm 95. And there in Psalm 95, verse 2, we see God has prescribed that we approach him with a thankful heart. Psalm 95, look at verse 2. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. How do we approach the Lord? With thanksgiving. Now flip over to Psalm 100. And there we see in Psalm 100, verse 4, verse 4 begins with an imperative here. Enter, he's telling you how you must do this, what God's command is to you. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
Give thanks to Him and bless His name. The psalmist is describing how it is that God's people were to approach His presence. When we are going to worship God, in their time it was through the tabernacle, right, or in the temple, and we're going to approach to the manifest presence of God, we dare not do so in our own way. But we need to come the way that our God, our Creator, is prescribed. And here the psalmist is saying, as we approach God, he recognized we must come before Him with thanksgiving. So he's not saying this is how you are to enter into God's eternal presence in heaven. That is only through the atoning grace of Jesus Christ. It's not just being a thankful sinner, right? You need the blood of Jesus Christ. But the psalmist is saying, if we've been atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ, and thank God we've been forgiven, we have access into his throne, you need thanksgiving if you're going to approach him in worship. You need thanksgiving if you're going to approach him in meaningful prayer. That's how God is worshipped. That's how he's prescribed that we appear before him. And we live in an age where just about everything, at least everything digitally, requires a password. And it's really annoying for some of us because you have to remember all your passwords. And if you forget your password for your bank or whatever, you won't be able to have access to your money. You might get locked out of your email. You don't even have access to all the benefits that come with being you if you don't have the right passwords on your computer. But there's a sense in which God is saying here, from God's prescription in these psalms, that you can't approach God's presence in worship without thanksgiving. Are you thankful? It's a big deal. Why do we spend so long talking about these sins of envy and covetousness and contentment? Because with those things, you can't worship God. You can always cry to God. You can always lament Him. You can always pour out your complaint before Him. But as long as we do so with an unthankful heart, we're falling short of what the Bible calls worship. On the other hand, if you come into God's presence with thanksgiving, one thing's for sure. You will have a meaningful time with God. Because that thanksgiving will bring you into the presence of God. It's what God Himself prescribes. He won't turn you away. And there's another sense in which a thankful heart brings us into the presence of God. And that is a thankful heart drives us there. A thankful heart drives us into the presence of God. If you have a thankful heart, you won't be able to keep aloof from time worshiping God. Worshippers are thankful people, and thankful people are worshipers. You see, if you find it difficult to pray, if you find no interest in singing to the Lord, even coming to church, you know what what part of your problem is at least? You, You aren't a thankful person. Not to the Lord. You're not thankful to the Lord. Because when, Christian, when you get a hold of thankfulness, you will enter His courts with thanksgiving. You'll enter into the Lord's presence, thanking Him joyfully. If we find it difficult to pray, here's one solution. Let's learn to be a little more thankful. Let's learn to be a thankful Christian. And we will find that we will pray like we've never prayed before. So this study is not at all intended to be comprehensive, but I think you get the point. That genuine worship necessarily involves magnifying God's preeminence and remembering his providence, all his goodness to us, and coming before his presence. And you can't have these essentials without thanksgiving, not without genuine thanksgiving. And so there's no point to our worship if we're not thankful. Thankfulness is essential for worship. And however you observe this week's national holiday, you'd better approach life with a thankful heart. That's the main idea. That's that's the point. If we don't, Christian, then everything we're doing here is just an empty, hollow tradition. Maybe somebody here, you say, well, you know, I've got so much going on in my life. I'm, I'm weighed down by so many things physically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever. There's so much going on in my life. 
I'm finding it very difficult to thank God. I just don't feel it. Maybe you're there. If you're not there, you'll be there sometime. We all know what that's like. And if that's you, I'm just glad that you're honest about that. But let me encourage you this morning, Christian. If that's you, you need to remember who Jesus Christ is. It's worth taking a look at the cross again and remembering there your Savior crucified for you, what he's done for you, and then remembering the empty tomb that he's not there, he's risen, and so there is hope for you. And if you get a hold of those things, that will stir us to remember our great salvation, eternal, incorruptible. And how can we not, in such a situation with such a great Savior, thank our God? May the Lord fill us with thankfulness that he might receive the glory due his name. Let's pray.